0: This is the Sports Psychology Hour with Dr. Andrew Jacobs on Sports Radio 810 WHB. What I've done is help athletes be the best they can be. We work on giving you that winning edge, that mental edge that will help you realize your potential. Dr. Jacobs has been in practice for over 30 years as a sports psychologist. This is the first time I've ever listened to it. I'm on my way to church and I said, I got to pull over and talk. Right
1: now is your chance to call Dr. Jacobs for free help with any sports-related problem. It's a wonderful form, and I, I was, it must be a radio for me every
0: time I'm in the Kansas City. This show is about you. It's about having fun, working hard, building self-confidence, having the right attitude, being a good teammate, being a good parent, and being a good cook. Now, here's the sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs. Good morning, everyone. I am sports psychologist, Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and welcome to our show here in Sports Radio 810 WHB. As you know, I'm here every Sunday from 7, 8 a.m., and this show is about you. It's about mindsets and attitudes and sportsmanship, and we delve into the issues of what goes on between your ears in the world of sports. And each week, I try to bring up topics and discussions and have interviews where we talk about these, these various different types of problems, issues, things that go on, and, um, you know, the world of sports is an interesting, interesting area to explore because you have so many different things that come up in sports. And perhaps the most obvious thing is behavior of people and how people act and react to stress and pressure, winning and losing, success and failure. And every week I try to get into discussions with you about all these different topics and explore the world of sports. And if you 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 know, if you follow sports, you know, every week there's something that comes up. Every week something comes up that we can talk about on this show because it affects kids. You know, I, I have been in practice as a sports psychologist for 36 years, been on the radio in Kansas City for 26 years, the last 16 years here at Sports Radio 810 WHB, and we get into discussions on this show about how to, to make the world of sports a positive area, a more productive area, and something you can learn from. And I try to explore issues that I think you will be interested in. We have a guest who we'll be talking to in a few moments on the phone. His name's Jim Thompson. He's the founder and head of the Positive Coaching Alliance. It's a national organization that basically works with kids and coaches to help them become better. And this past week, we had another scenario that came up. You Freeze, the head football coach at the University of Mississippi, resigned following allegations that he'd been using a university cell phone to contact an escort service. All right, so here's a guy running an SEC program that won the Sugar Bowl a couple years ago. And a guy who has prided himself on trying to develop these young athletes, and here he is doing something like this, gets caught and resigns. So I want to talk about the role of coaches as role models, the role coaches play in kids' lives. And, And here's the bottom line. Coaches are people. They're human beings. They have emotions. They have feelings. And they get screwed up, too. They make mistakes, too. But when you're in charge of a group of kids, and college players are still kids, even though they have the bodies of young men, emotionally they may not be that well-developed. When you have the guy in charge doing this, what's that say to the kids that he's coaching? That's what we're going to get into today. And we're going to talk with Jim Thompson, the founder, CEO of the Positive Coaching Alliance. Jim, are you with us this morning?
1: I am. Great to be with you, Andy.
0: Listen, thanks for joining us. I know it's early out in California, so thank you so much for getting up and being with us today. No problem. You know, um, this topic, the role of coaches, the role coaches play, obviously your organization, Positive Coaching Alliance, deals with this all the time. So I want to talk about that with you this morning, but before we do, tell everyone about the Positive Coaching Alliance, how it got started, what you're trying to accomplish with the organization.
1: You bet. Um, Really kind of stumbled onto it. I got a job many, many years ago in St. Paul, Minnesota, working with emotionally disturbed behavior problem kids. Uh, These are kids who couldn't be handled in the regular classroom, so they were bussed into a special school called the Behavioral Learning Center from all over St. Paul. And I got trained in a relentlessly positive approach with these kids. They weren't allowed to run wild. We had a, an approach um, if kids misbehave. But basically, every little step they took in the right direction, they got reinforced for. And the transformation of these kids was amazing. They, um, you know, these are kids who probably had been abused or neglected or both. But they were able to go back to the regular classroom, and then we worked with the coach—I'm uh, sorry, with the teachers and principal there—to continue the positive reinforcement. I met my wife there; we got married, and seven years later, I'm a business student at Stanford. My son is starting to play sports, and I couldn't believe how much negativity there was. And uh, I didn't know all the research at that time, as as I know you're aware, Andy. Um, positivity is the basis of all good things really and um, when when employees in a in a company, when students in a classroom, when players on a team are given lots of positivity, high expectations also, but lots of positivity, they're able to do things that they didn't even know they could do. So years later I started Positive Coaching Alliance. It's now grown to we have 17 chapters around the country. We, Last year we did uh, 2,500 live workshops around the country, and we're actually targeting Kansas City as our next chapter that we want to launch. So hopefully uh, I'll be able to uh, listen to your radio show a lot.
0: Well, like I said, as we spoke before, I'd like to get involved with that and help you out with that as I've been doing this for 36 years, basically been a sports psychologist as long as anybody in the country. And this has been one of the things that I talk about on this show every week because, you know, Jim, it it concerns me greatly how kids get affected by coaches. And so many people have such great reasons to get involved in youth coaching. They wanna help kids out, they wanna teach them, they want them to have fun. But then you've got a, a lot of people who don't understand the psychological impact they have on kids. And I get in my office every week, I get new clients who call me up. And, and it's interesting. I was having a conversation yesterday with, with a good friend about this. I said, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about it. I'm getting younger and younger kids in my office now. I'm getting 8-, 9-, and 10-year-olds coming in my office. And I never had that before. And these are kids who are psychologically damaged by coaches. They've been told negative things, they're told they're not good enough, they're yelled at, they're screamed at because they strike out or miss a shot, and they're eight and nine. And I never, you know, I was thinking, it's, that just started to happen in the last five years. And what I'm seeing, and I want to get your perspective on this, as CEO of the Positive Coaching Alliance, you you know, we are putting kids in more and more organized, structured activities at younger and younger ages, and the whole issue of winning is becoming more and more important. Winning championships, winning the title, you know, traveling teams going around the country. A few few weeks ago, Jim, I had a story about a baseball team in Texas where a coach recruits kids from all over the country to play in his team, and these kids are 10 and under. One dad spent $30,000 up to that point a few weeks ago flying his son back and forth. So what's what's going on with, with youth sports today, Jim, and why are we having this problem?
1: Well, um, we, can, we can start with the, the coaches, but I think the place to really start is with the culture. Um, culture, the way we define it as Positive Coaching Alliance, is culture is the way we do things here. Um, and we think about the culture of, of sports in this country, it's largely an, an entertainment sports culture. It's a business, and businesses need to make money, and the way you make money is by entertaining fans. And the way you entertain fans is by winning. That's just just the way it is. Um, Youth sports is something different, and we talk about having a development zone culture where the goal of youth sports is to develop better athletes, better people. You are trying to compete. You are trying to win, but that's only a piece of the picture. So part of what we do with Positive Coaching Alliance is we work with schools, youth sports organizations, soccer clubs, little leagues, you name it, and we help them create a positive coaching culture which gives people with signals on how to behave now coaches um, you know want want to do the right thing in most cases um, we we say that there's a continuum of coaches out there youth coaches there at one end of it there are people who really shouldn't be working with kids they're just you know they're just not set up to do that uh, at the other end there are coaches that we call God's gift to parents when when you're a parent of a an athlete, and you get one of these coaches, it's like, oh, man, I can't believe it. It's so great. Well, what our job is is to move, except for the coaches that shouldn't be working with kids, is to move every one of those coaches along that continuum. So if they're a good coach, let's make them a great coach. If they're a great coach, let's help them be a a God's gift to parent kind of coach. So we really work with the culture and then uh, take a systems approach. So we work with the leaders of an organization, coaches, parents, athletes, and uh, get them all on the same page working together to make youth sports really what it should be, one of the most beautiful experiences you can have in life.
0: Well, obviously I agree 100% with you on that, but the problem is we have a lot of people who get involved in youth sports because they want to win. And when a lot of coaches get involved in youth sports because they want to win, their ego gets involved. You know, in our book that I wrote, Just Let Him Play with Jeff Montgomery and Pete Malone, we talk in there about the coach's role, and one of the things we say is a good coach checks his or her ego at the door. And I have a saying I like to say, a good coach is a good psychologist, and a bad coach needs a sports psychologist. But yeah. you have a lot of problems with a lot of coaches because their egos get involved, and then the whole winning thing starts to come in. And I don't care, Jim, if they're if they're coaching 8-year-olds or 14-year-olds or whatever. What I'm seeing is that a lot of these people are not trained in the, the things you teach people and the things I work with people on because their egos get involved and they get caught up with the winning and then their identification starts to become associated with the team winning and they're a bunch of eight-year-olds winning a, you know, a baseball game or a softball game or a soccer game. And these coaches get upset if the kids screw up and they'll say derogatory things to the kids. The parents may say derogatory things that, that another child screws up. And then it, it's just like a tornado taking over. So how do, from your perspective... When your organization works with people on this, how what do you suggest to be done that can change that?
1: Well, we developed a model for coaches. We call the double goal coach. First goal, trying to win. Um, you know, I like to go and throw the Frisbee around with my grandson, but the, what sports offers beyond the, that is uh, situations of pressure where you're, you have to deal with fear. So the, comp- the competitive nature of sports is really great for teaching character. Um, the Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, uh, one of the top business books of all time, talks about what he calls level five leaders. It's not that these level five leaders, who are in in Collins' minds the the most outstanding leaders, it's not that they don't have ego. It's that they they put their ego into developing their team, their organization, and developing the people, the players in that team, so that Uh, winning actually becomes a byproduct of doing things the right way. I think you've got a great example in Kansas City with the Royals. This is a a professional sports team that does things the right way. Andy, if I can just say one thing about uh, what kids need from youth sports, um, and I'll bring this back to the coaches. um, Three things kids need. First of all, they need to feel a connection with the coach and their teammates. We all want to be part of something bigger, and we tell coaches that if you want kids to commit – your sport, and just really give everything you can to that team, they've got to feel connected to you. So they need their emotional tanks filled. When uh, Become a noticer as a coach. When a kid makes um, effort, re- reward it, reinforce it. When a kid makes some improvement, even just a little bit of improvement, uh, reward that and recognize it. Second thing kid needs be need besides being connected is they need to believe that they can improve. It could be a really bad athlete to start with but if you have a coach who convinces that athlete that she can get better sky's the limit
0: but isn't excuse me isn't that what it's all about though isn't it about development and having fun and teaching fundamentals and teaching life skills and just just enjoying the experience instead of having to i mean winning and losing are going to happen we know that and you and i've talked before i think winning and losing should be things that become important when you're in middle school, junior high, you know, 13, 14. That's 12, 13, 14. That's when that issue comes up. But for me, Jim, before that, I don't think 8-, 9-year-olds need to care about whether they win or lose.
1: Well, you know, the the research shows that kids really don't think very much about winning until they get to be 9 or 10 years old. <laughs> um, the, the the key thing for kids when they start out is that they have fun, they're with with kids they feel uh, connected to. They like their coach. They want to come to practice, um, and they're just having fun. That'll keep them coming back. As they get older, uh, enjoyment is tied to improvement. They've got to they got to get better. So I, I tell coaches. Some coach may say to me, "Well, you know, I, I've never coached before. I'm, i do not know the, I don't know how to coach very well. Should I get into coaching?" And I would say, if you're willing to make a commitment to get better every year, you know. There, there's so many books. There's so much online resources. Uh, there's so many videos about how to coach. If you're willing to make that commitment to get better and help kids get better, then yeah, jump into it. It's a great, great experience.
0: Well, I agree 100%. And that's that's why I wanted to have you on the show today because I think we're you and I think the same way here. But the problem is, there are a lot of people who get involved for reasons other than that, and then they end up getting caught up in the whole winning and losing with a one-loss record, how many games they've won. And, I mean, it's just this past week. I had an 8-year-old boy in my office who plays soccer. He has a confidence issue. He's 8 because his coach got mad at him because he missed the open goal. The the goalie fell down. He shot the ball, went over the the goal, and the coach took him out and yelled at him on the sideline and said, you know what, you can't do that if we're going to win. He's 8. So explain what you would do in that situation, Jim, with your organization. How would you try to train that man to understand what he's done wrong?
1: I want to come back to talk about culture in a second because culture affects how we, we all act. And if an organization creates a strong, positive coaching culture, coaches pick up the, those vibes. But in that situation, for example, we, um, Positive Coaching Alliance, we are, try to be really practical. What are the tools that coaches, parents, athletes can use to to have a great experience. So in a situation like that, we have a a tool called You're the Kind of Person Who. Um, And so after that play where a kid had an opportunity to make a great play and and blew it, to say something like, you know, um, I'm sure you're disappointed you missed that shot. But you know, one of the things I like about you is that you're the kind of person who, and then you fill in the blank, who doesn't get discouraged easily, who bounces back uh, when they make a mistake. Uh, you're the kind of person who I know is going to come out of practice on Monday and work even harder. Um, now, which the, you, you say that the coach said, you know, we can't win if you miss shots like that. Which approach? His approach or what I just outlined, you're the kind of person who doesn't give up easily. Which of those approaches is going to help that kid become uh, the kind of kid who makes a shot in the future and the team wins. I think it's obvious.
0: Well, yeah, and and that's where, you know, the whole emphasis that I put on about not letting your ego get involved plays such a key role in that because that coach got angry at that young man because he missed the shot because of his ego because it's a reflection of him. Well, we're going to lose now. We didn't lose, and and unfortunately, a lot of people tie their identity in into this. I mean, I see it more and more now, and. You know, you've been emphasizing the the importance of culture, and I agree 100% with you. I'm 62 and a half years old. I like to throw that half in there because when we get older, you know, you, you still want to quantify how, how, how young you are. But, All right. you know, when I grew up, and I've talked about it on this show many, many times, Jim, we go out, if, tennis was my sport, and if I wasn't playing tennis after school, my friends and I would play basketball on my driveway because I had the wraparound driveway, or we go up to the grade school up the street play football and basketball or baseball until it got dark. Then we go home. We didn't have parents supervising us. We weren't caring about the score. We just kept playing. And I don't see that anymore. Rarely do I see a group of kids at a grade school playing without parents supervising. Now we have safety issues today that I think you and I both know are, are much more prominent than they were when you and I grew up. But we don't see... Kids playing nearly like they used to. Everything's structured and organized, and that's one of the concerns I have as a sports psychologist: is that kids aren't creating on their own as much anymore. What do you think about that?
1: Oh yeah, no question. My uh, one of my fondest memories from childhood is my my mom and dad got divorced when I was two, and she would uh, we she'd teach, and I'd go to school to a town in North Dakota, and we'd go back to Colfax, North Dakota, where my grandmother lived every weekend. As soon as I got out of the car, I'd run to my friend Pat's house, and we'd go over to the high school janitor's house, and he would give us his whole set of keys. We'd go over to the gymnasium and open it up, no adults around, and we'd play basketball all weekend long. That's that's just fantastic. Um, the you know we can't go back to what I call the golden age of sandlot ball. The world is very different. But Jay Coakley, who's a sports sociologist from Colorado, he's on our national advisory board. Um, he talks about building in free play in your practices. We can try to replicate the situation that you and I grew up in that was so positive so positive and so uh, wonderful. You can try to replicate that by giving kids some time to, to play. There's a uh, philosophy of teaching that came out of New Zealand, Australia, uh, Teaching Games for Understanding, and Instead of telling kids what to do, you set up game conditions for them to, to compete. So, for example, I'm a basketball coach, and I want to teach my kids how to defend a three-on-two break, fast break. I want to teach them how to do a three-on-two in the offense. So instead of, of showing them exactly what to do, I take five kids and I say, "Okay, hey, you two are in defense, you three are in offense. Um, take a couple of minutes and talk about what you're going to do, and we're going to, I'm going to give you the ball, and we're going to go at it. Let them try it a few times. And then you haven't told them anything about how to defend or how to attack. And then say, okay, what did you learn? Uh, what could work better? What hasn't worked? And you can toss something in there, but, again, you're putting it back on the kids. Because, Andy, I think that's what was so great about your experience and my experience. It was on us. Nobody was telling us what to do. We were trying and experimenting and trying something else, and it was our experience.
0: Well, I always encourage coaches to do this along the same lines, and that is, have a practice, every, every a few practices, where you just let the kids go out and play. And you don't say anything. You just watch them. Let them pick sides if it's a baseball, basketball, softball team. Let them pick sides. Or maybe you, you just pick the teams and say, go play and go have fun. And you don't coach them. You don't sit there and tell them what they're doing right or wrong. Let them play. watch Watch the kids and see what they do. You'll learn more from that probably than you will when you're trying to instruct them. Then the other thing I always encourage people to do is, is forget about the score in those things and just let the whole, whole play situation happen along with this. And, I, and I, I encourage coaches to have a practice where they don't have practice. The practice is a group therapy session where they sit and talk about the sport, talk about the fun of the sport, talk about why everybody's playing and what they're learning from it. And I think kids can get so much from that as much as from an organized practice. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, actually, I think that, that should be built in to every, every practice, really. Um, the, we, we encourage coaches to have an opening ritual uh, and a closing ritual so that when kids come to practice, they know, okay, I'm, I'm leaving the, other, the, the larger world. I'm coming into the world of this team where I feel connected and, and cared for, and, um, you know, so we, we do a, a ritual that signals that. What I encourage coaches to do at the end of practice, at the closing ritual, is to have some kind of uh, conversation with them about uh, the research shows that kids don't automatically carry over the lessons they learn from sports to school and the relationships. So they just say, hey, um, we worked really hard today, uh, really great practice, really enjoyed it. What would it be like if you worked as hard on your math homework, for example? So you're helping the kids make the, um, make the connection. I, I, had a, I coached a high school girls' basketball team, and I got an idea from a book called "In these Girls: Hope is a Muscle about a high school basketball team. And one of the girls in the book had uh, what she called a strong woman wall on her wall next to her bed. She had pictures of all the women that she admired. So I had the girls uh, bring in a picture of a woman they admired and talk about it. Um, did that take time away from practicing skills? Well, maybe, but I also think it made the team stronger, and um, we actually won our league title that year.
0: Well, that's a great, great thing to do. And, you know, Jim, you've got so many great comments and and. and your organization does such a wonderful job trying to educate people. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. We're talking this morning with Jim, Jim Thompson, the founder and CEO of the Positive Coaching Alliance. We're going to go to a commercial break here, but we'd like to come back. Let's get some calls in here. If you are a youth sport coach, if you're a high school coach, if you want to coach, if you've got questions about what's the right way to do it. In addition to myself, you've got you've got the expert Jim Thompson here on the line with us. So it's a great opportunity to call in. Our number is 913-3810-810. 913-3810-810. I'd like to hear from you if you are a coach. You want to get better at coaching. There are things you want to learn. I want to hear from you if you're a parent and you have concerns about the coach who's coaching your child. It could be any age, high school, college, youth sports, whatever. You've got concerns about the things the coach is telling your child and you're not sure what to do. This is a great opportunity to call up, talk to me, talk to Jim Thompson. Our number here, once again, 913 I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs, and I'm the leader in sports. Sports Radio 810 WHB. Good morning, everyone. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. This is the Sports Psychology Hour here on Sports Radio 810 WHB. As you know, I'm here every Sunday from 7 to 8. Been on the radio in Kansas City now for 26 straight years, the last 16 years here at Sports Radio 810 WHB. And today we're having a very stimulating conversation. On the line with me from California is Jim Thompson, the founder and CEO of the Positive Coaching Alliance. And we'd like to encourage you to give us a call. Jim knows how to make coaching a positive situation for kids and coaches. His organization has been around since 1998. He's written several books on youth sports, and he knows Phil Jackson, which we'll talk about here in a few moments, and the impact Phil's had on on kids because he has uh, a tremendous had a tremendous impact. In fact, my favorite book outside of my book, Just Let Him Play, Guiding Parents, Coaches, and Athletes for Youth Sports that I wrote with Jeff Montgomery and Pete Malone, is Sacred Hoops, which Phil Jackson wrote. I think it's just, it's it's the Bible, other than they call me coached by John Wooden of, of coaching. But we'd like to encourage you to call in. If you are a parent and you have a coach who's coaching your child, son or daughter, doesn't matter what age, and you've got some questions about the way they're coaching, what they're saying, the impact it's having on your child, our number is 913 Give us a call. Open up our phone lines now. Let's see if we can get some calls in here and talk with Jim and myself about this. 913-3810-810. If you are a coach and you are unclear on the things you say to the kids that you're coaching, you've got some questions about what's the best thing to say? How do I encourage them the right way? Or what am I saying that may have a negative impact? I know there are a lot of you out there who do that. You question yourself. You evaluate yourself after a game, after a competition, and wonder, did I say the right thing? Was that the wrong thing to do? And if you did something wrong, how do you correct it? Once again, our number is 913-3810-810. This is a great opportunity for you to call in, talk with myself and Jim Thompson. Now, Jim, let let me get into this whole issue with you because obviously your organization is called Positive Coaching Alliance. And we started the show off with you talking about the importance of being positive. Researchers found it takes 12 positive statements to overcome one negative. When you are a coach... And you're coaching a group of 10-year-old girls on the softball field. And coaching girls is different than coaching boys. I hear this all the time from coaches. And research shows that you have to treat them a little bit differently. You've got to be positive. You've got to be reinforcing. But you also have to be constructive. What's the difference from your perspective about being constructive and positive and being deconstructive and negative with the, the messages you tell kids?
1: Well, John Robinson, who uh, won a national championship in football at the University of Southern California, has a quote that we use in our workshops all the time. He said, I never criticize a player until I am convinced that he knows I believe in him. So the first thing is, great coaches let their kids know they believe in them. And I had a great professor at Stanford named Jim March, one of the smartest guys ever walked the face of the earth. And he talked about uh, anybody can believe in somebody after they've de- shown what they can do. But what great coaches do, what great leaders do, is they let people know beforehand, before they've shown it, I believe in you, I I see what you can become. And when kids feel like the coach believes in them and is on their side, then what we might like call criticism <clears throat> becomes feedback. And it's like, I'm with you, I'm, my job is here to help you become the best athlete, the best person you can be. Then they're able to take it, as opposed to uh, you got to show me what you can do, and you know, then then criticism really cuts into the confidence of the players.
0: Okay, so believing in a child is important. If you're a teacher and you're trying to teach them a certain math problem, you've got to give them the opportunity to succeed and fail, but you have to give them the opportunity to realize it's okay to fail and you can learn. You know, the third chapter in my book is embracing failure can lead to fun. Yep. And, and the reason Pete, Jeff, and I wrote that, and, and Jeff Montgomery is a three-time All-Star with the Kansas City Royals. He's in the Royals Hall of Fame, the career saves leader at the Royals. Pete Malone coached five gold medals in the Olympics. Coached, we figured out Pete and I, I worked with him for 27 years. He coached over 10,000 kids. And, and God knows how many went, went on to swim in college, including my, my youngest son. Um, but we talked about this whole failure thing because— you know, let's face it, Jim, if, you, if you're playing a game and there's a score, somebody's going to come out on top and somebody's going to come out on the bottom. But you cannot win the game and still be a winner, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But, but a lot of coaches don't get that. We, they lost the game, and then they want to associate blame with somebody or point, out, point fingers at a, at a child who screwed up and say, you know, if you hadn't done this, we would have won. I'm sure you've heard that countless times. So how do you get a coach who's saying things like that to start to understand the impact it's having on a 10-year-old boy or a 10-year-old girl? Because I have seen the after effects of that, and it's pretty bad. Kids' self-confidence gets destroyed. Their self-image gets ruined. They start to, to think all these negative things about themselves. They start to think we're the reason we lost. And that—that that is not the way to coach. What do you think about that?
1: yeah no no question <clears throat> you know one of um one of the things we're working on is a, a positive coaching alliance center at uh, University of Kansas that'll launch in the fall and uh, working with Mary Fry there who's done some amazing research on creating a caring climate that um, if you want you want kids to be able to really throw themselves into the sport um, greet them by name. they come to practice and and say, hey, Billy, hey, Johnny, tell their parents something good. When I was coaching, I would make a point when every time I saw a parent, I would have something positive to say about their kid. Now you you combine that with hard work. Um, We talk about the entwinement of enjoyment and effort. And so to say to the kids, man, you know, we worked really hard today. Wasn't that fun? to get in their minds the idea that hard work is enjoyment. It's not like, oh, you work hard and then you have fun. No, the two things are together. Um, I have a lot of friends, Andy, who are in the 12-step movement, Alcoholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, and there they talk about the inevitable setback. Um, Sooner or later, and you talked about it in different words, but if you're playing sports, no matter how good you are, you're going to have setbacks. And a great coach embraces those setbacks. It's like, how do we know how good we're going to be? How do we know how, um, how much grit and hardiness we have if we don't get challenged once in a while? So helping kids to see those, those um, setbacks as challenges rather than failures.
0: Well, I, you know, you and I think the same way on all these things. And the problem we have today, I think, is that the world of youth sports especially has expanded exponentially now to where there there are kids getting involved in younger and younger ages with people getting involved because they have these dreams. A lot of parents, Jim, have dreams of their kids playing collegiately or even professionally, and let's face it, the percentage of kids who will make it professionally is minuscule. I always tell professional athletes, you're survivors. You survive the world of youth sports because Mm -hmm. so many people don't get, you know, there's uh, Joe Carter when the, uh, World Series with the Toronto Blue Jays in 1993. He had the game-winning home run for the Blue Jays that that won them the championship. And one of the nicest people I've ever met, one of the most upbeat people I've ever met. And I asked Joe, our sons played together on Jeff Montgomery's uh, baseball team, which is one of the reasons I had Jeff, in addition to working with Jeff with the Royals, had him participate in my book because he coached my older son and he did it the right way. And Joe and I would talk about so I wanted to get to know him, just, just a fabulous guy. And he, he'd he say, you know, there were so many guys who were more talented than me who played, but I was always upbeat and positive. And you could see with so many of these guys how their attitude affected them in such a negative way. And he goes, I get to know a lot of these guys, and, and a lot of it was the way they were grown up and what they were taught. They were always criticized, and they always had that negative thing on them. And it, I've spent Jim 36 years, as I've said, working as a sports psychologist, and I've dealt with so many professional athletes who have that negative dark cloud like, like uh, Linus on uh, Charlie Brown on, on the yeah. Peanuts cartoons, walk around that negative, that dark cloud over their heads because of something that was, you know, it's interesting. One thing that was told to them as an eight-year-old sticks more than all the positive things. So with the Positive Coaching Alliance, how can you educate coaches to recognize what they say more so to make it more of a positive situation and a learning situation for kids?
1: Well, so let me talk about culture then. Uh, Culture, again, is the way we do things here. And most organizations, if they're for-profit companies or nonprofits or sports teams, don't have really um, coherent cultures. It's often kind of slapdash. But the great teams, the great companies have cultures that people have thought about. And, again, culture is the way we do things here. So um, the power of culture is that when people want to be a part of an organization – they look around and they say, okay, how do people in this organization behave? And then I want to try to do it. So um, if, if you go to – you're hired by a company and everybody uh, dresses up for work,
0: then you dress up for work because that's part of the culture. That's the way you do things there. So youth sports leaders – Well, hold on, hold. On, let me interrupt you. Let me. But what if you don't sure. want to dress up for work? What if that's not you? You can still be productive and not dress up. So, so what do you do then? Well, uh, for,
1: first of all, it's really hard to go. If you want to be part of a group, it's really hard to go against those cultural norms. It's, it's hard to come in wearing jeans and a T-shirt. It's the, uh, the culture there is that you dress up. When I worked for Hewlett Packard, um, the culture was uh, one of the reasons I love working for Hewlett Packard is because you didn't have to wear a tie. I used to say I'd give up $20,000 of salary to not have to wear a tie every day. But you know when you had to wear a tie? You had to wear a tie when you had a customer visit. You had a customer coming into the factory. You had to wear a tie. And if you didn't wear a tie, somebody came to you and said, often not your boss. They said, hey, it's not okay to to not wear a tie here. Um, Those cultural norms are really powerful. And when you set them, um, this is to help us. You you explain it to the kids. Uh, This is the way we do things here because we want to be the best we can be. We want to be the best team. I need you. I need each of you to, to commit yourself to this team and work really hard. Um, and this is going to help us do that. Um, so if it's, you know, I, I like your statement, Andy. You said, what if it's not you? Um, who we are, our identity changes over time. And the, the, the key is really, is this an organization I want to be part of? Is it an organization that's going to help me achieve my goals? And if it is, I'm going to wear that tie even if
0: I don't want to. Well, you know, one of the things, Jim, that that I've noticed over the years is change is inevitable in everything we do. And it's funny you say that because when I first started practicing in 1981, I wore a suit to work. I haven't worn a tie other than to a a bar mitzvah or a wedding in the last five years. Um, I don't wear those anymore. I'm I'm very casual because I find – you know, when, I, when I'm dealing with young, young people in my office, if I'm sitting there in a, in a suit or a sport cut and a tie, it intimidates them. So I try to be relaxed talking to them, and I think that makes them more comfortable. But I think this whole idea that you bring up, and I love what you're talking about about culture. It is about culture. And our culture in this country, and this is the concern I have on this show, and I talk about it every week. The culture in our country is so focused on winning, so focused on being number one. And I'm not even going to get into the political issues that go on with that. But to me, it shouldn't be about having to be number one. It's about being the best I can be. Because if I'm the best I can be, I have a better chance at being number one instead of focusing on being number one. Does that make sense to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I had the privilege of working with David Bradshaw at the Stanford Business School, and he talks about core values and peripheral values. I had a coach when I was in, in high school who, if my, if my hair was down over my forehead, even like an inch, he would get really angry with me. <clears throat> um, is, having, is how you wear your hair a core value or a peripheral value? I know when Phil Jackson, I know you, you, you want to talk about him, um, when Dennis Rodman came to the Bulls, Jackson had a conversation with him. And, um, you know, it's like Rodman said, I, uh, I'm not selfish, you know, I don't shoot a lot. And, and Jackson said, there are different ways to be selfish. And can you, uh, Rodman liked to dye his hair a different color. Uh, Jackson was smart enough to realize that's a peripheral value. Core values, you if you don't buy into the core values of the team, working hard, supporting your teammates, and you don't belong on this team. Peripheral values go wild. You want, you want to have your hair a different color, great. Um Understanding the difference between core values and peripheral values uh, is really crucial for that.
0: Well, Dennis Rodman is a very interesting individual, to say the least. Um, let's talk about Phil Jackson, and since you know him and, and his role and impact on sports today, I mean, obviously, in my opinion, Phil Jackson and John Wooden, two of the greatest coaches of all time, uh, and I will I will say being here in kansas city that i bill self may end up being one of those as well by the time he's done um but phil jackson in, in his book sacred hoops he talks about combining what he learned growing up in north dakota with all the things applied to fundamentals and teaching basketball and the mind body connection and really jim to me you know the mental part i always like to say you can have two athletes who are physically the same but the one with the stronger mind will be the one will come out on top and the mental part of sports, to me, in the end, is what it comes down to. If if psychologically you're together, you have a better chance of success than if you don't. So what, you know, you got to know Phil. What do you think his role has been in the world of, of, of sports?
1: Yeah, well, I wrote an op-ed that you saw uh, that ran in the San Jose Mercury News uh, about Phil Jackson's positive impact on youth sports, uh, there's a lot of, you know, when he when he left the Knicks recently, there's a lot of criticism of him. And as a psychologist, you know, there's a thing called the recency effect. The things that have happened most recently are the things we remember, not the things that happened earlier. And um, I didn't want that to get lost. You know, everybody knows he's won 11 NBA championship rings. Nobody else has come even close to that. But I think. At at the end of the day, one of his biggest contributions is the positive impact he had on youth sports. Now, there's uh, lots of positive coaches in professional sports today. Uh, A number of them work with us, um, Steve Kerr, Brad Stevens, Doc Rivers. Um, But the first really positive coach um, was Phil Jackson. And there was an article in, in Sports Illustrated years ago when he was coaching the Bulls. It was called Sitting Bull." And it was about how Phil Jackson didn't, you know, rant and rave up and down the sideline. He was calm. He prepared his players. He let them work things through. That was a huge role model for youth sports. Um, and I, I think that my my article went into other contributions he had in terms of mindfulness. For example, uh, he was the first prof- um, well known coach who encouraged his players to meditate and. Last year in the World Series, we had the Cubs versus the Indians, both of whom worked with sports psychologists, Ken Revisa for the Cubs, Charlie Marr for the Indians, who are on our national advisory board and advise us. Now the idea of keeping your mind in the moment, being able to control your attention, um, is is becoming well-known. But again, Phil Jackson was the one who pioneered that.
0: Well. To me, and the name of your organization, Positive Coaching Alliance, Jim, says it all. It's about being positive as a coach. What I see today in the world of sports is more of an emphasis on this than there ever has been. But I also see more and more people getting involved who aren't educated enough, who don't understand the big picture, and get caught in it because, as we said earlier in the show, their egos get involved. So I think the biggest thing we need to work on is education. And I know when I coached my older son, Jonathan's uh, baseball team, he was playing youth sports, he's 27 now. Let's see, he was uh, in first, second grade, I coached his t-ball team, coached uh, for three years. And I had to take a class. I know here in Kansas City, the organization Blue Valley Recreation required everyone who coached to take a class and watch a video and the video was a very elementary type of video about coaching, and there was just a little bit in there about sportsmanship, but not much. I think we, spent, we need to spend more time teaching coaches about the psychological component that they have on, on kids, the impact they, they have, and how important sportsmanship is, and, and about what you talk about, about positivity. And if we spend more time on that than working on the fundamentals, I think you're gonna have a lot more fun. Not that you shouldn't work on fundamentals, but I think we need to put more of an emphasis on that aspect. What do you think?
1: Yeah, and, and one of the things kids need in, from sports is that they, need, they, they want to feel proud of being on a team that does think the right way. And when you're in, a, in the middle of a fierce competition and the official makes a bad call against you or your uh, opponent uh, starts to trash talk or you know play overly rough with you, um, good coaches help kids prepare for that. So a coach, for example, could could uh, have a scrimmage in practice and make really bad calls as as an official, and then when the kid gets upset with it, the coach can say, well, "Wait a minute now. Um, what if the coach may, or what if the official makes a bad call in the game? Are you going to lose your cool the way you just left? Lost your cool now? Um, so you help kids do rehearsal." Bill Bill Walsh, of the Forty ers tried to rehearse every situation so that when the Forty ers you know, the, the, what's called the catch, Joe Montana, to Dwight Clark, it looked like uh, Montana was throwing the ball away. And, you know, Dwight Clark jumped like crazy and caught the ball. That was actually a play they rehearsed over and over and over again. So great coaches also rehearse sportsmanship, what we call honoring the game, and give, put kids in practice in tough situations like that so they'll know how to respond in the real real-life situations.
0: Well, Jim, this has been a great interview this morning. I, I, you know, I, I want to have you on again, and, of course, hopefully we can develop a relationship with your organization. Tell people how they can find out about the Positive Coaching Alliance if they want to get involved. Explain a little bit about that and how they can reach you if they'd like to.
1: Sure. Um, my email is jim at positivecoach.org. Our website is positivecoach.org. And we also have a resource uh, we call the Development Zone Resource Center, which is pcadevzone.org. If you have any question about youth sports, you're an athlete, parent, coach, leader, and there's something bugging you, we encourage you to go to pcadevzone.org, and we will either have material there for you. We've got 1,600 pieces of material, videos from Steve Kerr and people like that, We'll either have an answer for you, or you can tell us what the issue is, and we'll develop that we, with all the resources we have. We can go to them, and hopefully, Andy, you're going to be a resource for us as well.
0: Well, Jim, I want to thank you so much. I know it's early out in California. This has been a, a great interview, and we'll have it up on our uh, podcast page, so I encourage people to come to it and listen to it. I, you have great messages. It, you know, it, The thing that's interesting, and I love talking to people like yourself, I've been doing this for 36 years, as I've said, and... I'm finding more and more people around the country who are doing the same things, and it's, it's great that we can all get involved together and help young people and coaches make the youth sports and, and, and just the sports experience a more positive one. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, sir.
1: My pleasure, Andy. Thank you. All
0: right. Take care. All right. I'm sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. I'm here every Sunday morning from 7 to 8 a.m., and that's a great interview. Once again, they're going to be on our podcast page here at Sports Radio ten WHB. Just click on uh, the, the website, go to Additional Programming, and you'll find it. You can listen to the podcast on my website, WinnersUnlimited.com. You can reach me at DRJ at WinnersUnlimited.com. You can get a hold of me at my, um, my office, 816-561-5556. Follow me on Twitter at, at DRJSportsPsych. I am sports psychologist Dr. Andrew Jacobs. and I'm the leader in sports. Sports Radio 810 WHB.